Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. One of the objectives of this show is to connect the present day with the past, and specifically the period of the 1860s to the 1920s. So we go back over 100 years to explain how much has changed and how much has stayed the same. And of all of the things that we've discussed on the show, I cannot believe that we are going to talk about child labor laws. The Gilded Age and Progressive Era, or so I thought, had put this question about child labor to bed. Children should not be working. They certainly shouldn't be working in dangerous jobs. They should be in school and developing their interests. And yet, here we are talking about child labor in 2023. Last month, Hyundai began divesting a subsidiary company in Alabama because it employed children as young as 12 years old. And in Nebraska, children as young as 13 were illegally employed to clean slaughterhouses. In Iowa, state legislators are claiming that they want to modernize the labor laws to allow 14-year-olds to work as late as 9 p.m. And Minnesota wants to relax its laws to allow 16-year-olds onto construction sites. And literally just this week... Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has gotten rid of work permits. Big companies that you and I know have racked up major infractions to the law and complaints are growing that teenagers are being asked to work over 10-hour shifts or lose their job. Migrant children are exploited even more, with major U.S. brands and retailers being accused of having a shadow workforce. Hannah Dreyer at the New York Times has the full story on these children, and Joe Biden has recently announced new legislation to stop child migrant labor. But for now, a few questions arise that we might address. First, shouldn't children of this age be focused on their education? Shouldn't they be worried about graduating from high school and not prioritizing work? Now, I know there's a labor crisis going on right now, but surely the answer is not a return to the work culture of the 19th century. And a second question springs to mind. Who should be liable or responsible for a child in a factory or on a construction site? Is it their parents? Is it the foreperson or supervisor? What do they get paid? How are they kept safe from countless dangers? And what does it say about the United States, our culture, our society, our economy, and our politics? Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Professor of Political Science at Kansas State University, John Flyter. John has written the book on child labor law in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. It's called Child Labor in America, the Epic Legal Struggle to Protect Children. It came out in 2018. We are revisiting it today in light of the recent news. John is an eminent scholar, having written several books about foreclosure law and prisoner rights, as well as child labor. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you. I can't believe that we're talking about child labor laws in 2023, but here we are. Uh, Every time I I think it can't be any more like the Gilded Age, the news proves me wrong. You think we can turn the clock back and go back to the Civil War and just explain to everyone listening, what were the state of child labor laws at the end of the Civil War? There were only about six states that had child labor laws. And they were all in the Northeast. There were no child labor laws in the South. But the six states that had those laws, they were really weak laws. 
They weren't very effective at all because uh, there were no enforcement mechanisms. They specified a minimum age that a child would be permitted to work. So there was no verification of age. Also, there were no um, administrative like units as like a state uh, bureaucracy, a labor bureau or anything that would enforce the laws. Basically, those early laws, parents or someone from the community to notify a local police official that children were working and, you know, this was in violation of the law. Local prosecutor then would have to uh, prosecute those cases, providing that the parents were actually, you know, in support of their kids working. The, the other weaknesses of these early laws is that the, the employer had to knowingly be employing children in violation of the law. And that was really difficult to reach that kind of standard, that evidentiary standard from a prosecutorial perspective, because employers could always say, well, he told me he was 15, you know, and the kid's only 12. <laughs> and so the employer did not knowingly employ children because he assumed that the child was 15. So the early laws were weak, they were ineffective. So by the time, you know, the Civil War ends in 1865, those few laws, they're better than nothing, but uh, they're not really effective in, in eliminating the, the problem of oppressive child labor. Yeah, so it's fair to say, I guess, that there was probably a lot of children in the workforce back then. Yeah, that's one of the challenges, though, that I mentioned in my book, is that um, we don't have good statistics, you know, on the extent of the problem. There were no agencies, you know, tracking this. It wasn't part of the the census, you know, at that time, we don't start getting good statistics that the government was doing every 10 years until roughly 1870, 1880. So it was just mostly anecdotal evidence and whatever the states could collect as far as the scope of child labor. And back then, children who were 16 and 17 weren't even considered to be like minors, you know, they would be working, but that was not child labor. So the, the problem was probably more extensive than it, it actually was revealed in the statistics that were available at the time. So that was one challenge that reformers had to, to confront was how bad is this problem? You know, what's the scope of child labor? They had to, you know, gather enough statistical information on how many children were working in factories, mills, and, you know, sweatshops. And Fascinating. And then the, that's the domestic side of things. But there's obviously uh, an immigrant labor force as well. And just this month, President Biden has introduced new restrictions on migrant child labor. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of migrant, migrant child labor? Because in 1885, I read in your book that Congress had passed the Alien Contract Labor Act, uh, which I thought it prohibited any company or individual from bringing immigrants into the United States for the purpose of working, um, uh, or at least children for the purpose of, of working. And yet we still see this happening today. So what's the history of migrant child labor? You know, during the late 1800s, you know, there was a huge increase in immigration into the United States. The adults and their children were desperately seeking employment. The labor market was competitive from you know the employee's perspective jobs were scarce you had to take what you could to survive and many families relied on the labor of their children to contribute to the family income 
it wasn't enough just to have the father working. The, the kids were expected to work as well. Because we didn't have extensive or effective child labor laws, migrant labor was pretty widespread. The examples that I discuss in my book, uh, the parents actually supported it. You know, they wanted this extra income for the family and the children were put to work pretty early. Uh, some examples include, you know, working in, in, in sweatshops and, and doing, you know, homework. That was a big thing in the tenement buildings in New York City, in Boston, Chicago. Uh, young children often did uh, piecemeal homework, often not getting paid, but um, their parents would get a little extra because the children were able to, you know, produce extra material or products. So it was all a matter of, you know, what the kids could do to contribute to the family income. There was widespread exploitation, use of children in tobacco, the tobacco industry that was really big in, in the tenement, homework industry as, long, as well as uh, doing work at home in terms of sewing buttons on clothes and, and you know, things like that. You know, during the Industrial Revolution, late 1800s, when we had this influx of immigrants from Europe, especially, um, the labor market was, you know, was tight. It was competitive, and people had to do what they they could do to to get a job and to make a living. And unfortunately, that included, you know, working kids. I remember reading about Theodore Roosevelt going to tenements and seeing children working, making cigars with Jacob Reese and it really affecting him. Uh, when he's president in 1906 or 1907, I can't remember, but around that time, uh, Roosevelt and Albert Beveridge and Herbert Parsons attempt to reform the labor system uh, with, with legislation, with child labor legislation. So what's the goal of that legislation and how does it, well, a fail to get passed, it doesn't happen, but you know, what, what is the impact of it? Well, in, in 1906, Albert Beveridge, he's a senator, Republican senator from Indiana, progressive Republican, he's running for re-election and touches upon you know, the problem of child labor exploitation. And that generates a huge response from his audience. And he makes that you know, one of the driving issues of his re-election campaign. And he does become like, he becomes like the first member of Congress to introduce a bill to try to restrict child labor exploitation. Herbert Parsons co-sponsors the legislation in the House of Representatives. It doesn't have the strong support of Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, rhetorically, Roosevelt, you know, is concerned about child labor. But what's interesting at the time is that you have the American Federation of Labor is against, you know, child labor exploitation, but they prefer a state-level approach. They don't want the federal government to step in. And uh, so labor really isn't strongly behind the beverage bill. And uh, that bill would, would make it federal law prohibiting the transportation of goods produced by children you know, across state lines, because Congress has that authority to regulate you know, commerce between the states. In the Republican Party, Republican leadership did not support the legislation. I mean, they had passed a couple of bills during the progressive period, right? They, the Pure Food and Drug Act, the Meat Inspection Act, but there was growing concern that you know the federal government was just getting you know too involved in the market. It was getting too powerful. That was enough. You know that was enough expansion of federal power. 
there wasn't a lot of support for the child labor law, federal child labor law. So Beveridge, he was facing an uphill struggle. He, he didn't have the support of the American Federation of Labor. President Roosevelt was on the fence. He didn't advocate or strongly lobby for the bill. The National Child Labor Committee, which formed in 1904 and became like the leading organization to promote child labor reforms, they too you know, weren't strongly behind the beverage bill. There was major disagreement within the organization on whether they should you know, support that. Initially, the organization favored a state-by-state -state approach. And this is where you know, federalism and states' rights permeate this issue for about 100 years. It was, part, it was central to the battle over child labor reform. A lot of people felt that it was primarily a state responsibility. Anything that's local in terms of labor conditions, that was reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment. That was the belief. And for the federal government to step in and try to regulate child labor, a lot of people felt that that was kind of crossing a line and encroaching on states' rights and state responsibility. You know, that issue permeates all these debates over child labor reform. It contributed to the defeat of the beverage bill. Even though he gives a three-day speech, you know, very passionate speech in the Senate floor, and it generates a lot of support in the audience and among interest groups and the public, there's just not enough support from his party. Party leadership didn't back it. They're, the Democrats, especially conservative Democrats from the South, were opposed, and textile mills strongly opposed. And then you have the National Child Labor Committee, you know, the leading reform organization at the national level, they were divided on the beverage bill and they actually rescinded their support. It does not pass, it's defeated. And as I mentioned in my book, you know, he is uh, defeated for re-election. He serves out his term, isn't able to get re-elected to public office again. You know, at least he brought the issue to national attention. It was the first time that the problem of child labor received an audience in Congress, a serious you know, discussion of the problem of child labor exploitation. Because prior to that time, in the late 1800s, Congress would study you know, labor problems. They would study child labor exploitation, issue reports, and nothing ever came of it. No federal child labor laws were ever uh, passed in, in, as a result of these studies. But Beveridge, when he introduced that bill, he did bring the issue to the forefront. And the public was excited about this issue in, in the sense that you know, they were concerned about the problem. They saw it as a social evil, but there just wasn't enough political support in Congress to get that law passed. Sounds to me like Beveridge's real problem, or at least where he was finding the greatest obstacle, was around this idea of what's exploitation versus what's employment. And what's you know, what's a child then, too? Is it is a child 16 or and I suppose the, the other thing is your point about federalism is, OK, so the beverage bill, the beverage Parsons bill fails. But where do the states pick this up? How do they attempt to end child labor after this period? Well, you do have roughly by 1910, all the states having some type of child labor laws. They were very uneven, though. In many northern states, especially Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, 
uh, those child labor laws uh, were were tougher than every you know southern states and in many other states because the age that they established most of them required that a person be at least 16 years old uh, before they work in a factory or a mill, you know, or in a mine. Uh, sometimes the, the age was set at 14, but um, you had tougher laws in, in many northern states. Southern states had some laws, very weak though, very little enforcement in those, in those states. So it was a patchwork quilt of you know child labor laws at the state level not very effective even the national child labor committee which tend to focus on okay let's try to strengthen child labor laws at the state level rather than support a one size fits all federal law even they became frustrated and employers were frustrated as well because you had you know business owners in some northern states sincere in trying to comply with child labor laws and, and not employing children, but that kind of placed them at an economic disadvantage with respect to states with weak child labor laws. The companies had a, an incentive to just to move down south, you know, and set up textile mills down there rather than in Massachusetts. You know, a national law could even the playing field, whether it was New York or Illinois or Alabama or Georgia, you know, there would be one federal child labor law that you know, all businesses, all employers had to comply with. So that was, you know, that was the issue. You know, by the time you would get to roughly the first decade of the 20th century, states had child labor laws on the books. They were very uneven, though. Some were strong, others were really weak. And the, the push for a national law, federal law was designed to you know address that unevenness so who are the the activists here because you've mentioned now the national child labor committee and there's others as well that are pushing for federal regulation right yes so you have the national child labor committee they're the the most prominent organization and they're composed of middle to upper class reformers you know during the progressive period they made up a, a lot of the reform movement they, you know, they were professors, politicians, people drawn from the you know upper to middle to upper class. You know, based on religion, you had a, a lot of ministers and and uh, religious people, religious leaders involved as well. So the N the NL uh, National Child Labor Committee NCLC, and then there was the National Consumers League. That was an organization led by Florence Kelly. Uh, composed mostly of of female reformers, and um, you know their big thing. One of the things they did was advocate for child labor reform. They also wanted uh, protections for female workers, you know, fairer wages and things like that. But they were prominent in the child labor reform movement. And then I would say the American Federation of Labor, led by Samuel Gompers, was also you know big in the movement. Although the AFL, they favored state reforms. You know, Gompers was strongly opposed to child labor exploitation for decades. But even he eventually came around you know, to recognize that a national law was necessary because the states just weren't doing enough. Those, I'd say, were the three biggest organizations. There's a rising, um, there's a rising sort of sense of 
taking care of children at the federal level, though, too. I mean, the successive administrations had a conference on the child, and there's this growing... Is it is this part of the progressive movement? Because it seems to me that anytime we've ever talked about the progressive era, we have to talk about child labor, that this was in many ways, you know, the cornerstone of what middle-class progressives were, were arguing for in this period. Yeah, and you see this in some of the arguments that Beveridge is making when he's supporting his bill. It's not just an individual problem. It's not just a problem where, oh, these kids are working in factories and sweatshops and mills and mines, and too bad for them, and, you know, uh, they're losing their opportunity for an education, for physical and mental development. Yes, there is that serious consequence for each individual child, but Beveridge and other reformers were pointing out this is a community-wide problem. This affects the entire society because when kids start working at an early age, and some, some of them were working at you know six years old, seven years old, you know, they're being denied an education, their physical development becomes stunted, and you have now an entire almost you know class of young people who are illiterate, you know, not well formed physically, and that has a negative impact on society. We have an entire generation now that are being that are growing up, working at such a young age, being exploited for their labor. They're growing up hating society. And they're going to provide, they're going to be vulnerable to the radical ideas of, you know, communism and socialism and anarchism. There was that great fear that these, you know, these people would grow, you know, be part of these movements that undermine democracy. Yeah, that's, it's a serious concern. It's not just an individual problem, but it was also a social problem that, you know, had a serious impact on the community. It's it's incredible because as you're speaking, I'm just thinking about the intergenerational problems that we're not dealing with today. You know, this is a very short termism that we have, uh, and we, we seem to forget that you know Generation Z or whatever the next generation is called is is going to have a huge uh, impact on, uh, on on the future. So, but but I digress, and I, I want to get back to because you were you were starting to talk about. Uh, the 1916 legislation and the Wilson administration, a Democratic Congress finally gets legislation, federal le legislation passed in 1916, but the Supreme Court deems it unconstitutional. You have to tell us this story. <laughs> yes, the law is called the Keating-Owen Act, and um, it tried to regulate child labor through Congress's power to regulate commerce between the states. So if a company, an employer, used children in the production of a good, and they try to ship that product across state lines, that's something that Congress could prohibit. It was overturned in a five to four decision by the Supreme Court in a case called Hammer v. Dagenhart. Chief Justice, not Chief Justice, but uh, Justice Day wrote the majority opinion in Hammer v. Dagenhart, he basically takes, you know, the federalism angle that child labor is a state issue, you know, it's a local labor problem reserved to the states under their police powers. So under the 10th Amendment, you know, any powers that are not delegated to the state, to, to Congress, you know, 
in the Constitution, nor prohibited to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people. That's the Tenth Amendment. So the argument was that um, you know local labor conditions where children are working, that is an issue reserved to the states and their police powers. So using their police powers, they can address the problem of child labor, and that's you know one argument that Day makes you know in his opinion it's the central argument actually is that this is in an area that congress can regulate because it's reserved to the states under the 10th amendment he misquotes the 10th amendment and inserts the word expressly you know any powers not expressly delegated to congress you know under its enumerated powers but the word expressly is not in the 10th amendment the five justices in the hammer v dagenhar majority basically said this is not something that congress can address it's a state problem so we're back to the same. We're back to the same point here. We're back to it's it's a state's issue. How do they resolve it? Well, the, the dissenting opinion was written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, and his dissenting opinion argues that the law that Congress has passed really does not undermine state authority over child labor. The states can still regulate their internal commerce. You know their intrastate commerce. But if an employer wants to ship products made by children across state lines, then that becomes an area that Congress can regulate and an issue that Congress can prohibit. And for for Holmes, you know, the Tenth Amendment does not limit Congress's power over interstate commerce. So he makes a very strong argument that. This is this, you know, the Keating Owing Act is constitutional. Well, they were in the dissent. So, first federal law regulating child labor is struck down. You know, the court said, well, Congress using its power to regulate commerce between the states, you know, can't reach child labor. So, with the child labor tax law, Congress tries to use its authority to tax to address the issue of child labor. Any company that used child labor in the you know production of a product they would have their profits taxed you know under this law well the supreme court strikes down that law as well in bailey versus drexel furniture company so it's the second federal law struck down by the supreme court it's a it's a disappointing decision because brandeis and oliver wendell holmes joined the majority in Bailey v. Trexel Furniture. They were strong dissenters in the Hammer v. Dagenhard case, but in reviewing the federal child labor tax law, they joined the majority opinion written by uh, Chief Justice Taft. And that's a real you know, disappointment for all the reformers because Holmes and Brandeis seem to be on their side. And in that case, they're not. So what the Bailey decision does is it, it closes off an attempt by Congress to address trial labor using its taxing authority. Hammer v. Dagenhart closes off any attempt by Congress to regulate child labor under its Commerce Clause authority. So where are we left? You know, Congress doesn't appear to have any constitutional authority to regulate child labor. And that's what prompts the child labor amendment. Reformers decide, okay, well, 
if the Supreme Court says Congress does not have the power to regulate child labor under its Commerce Clause power or taxing authority, then let's give Congress the enumerated power to address child labor. It's introduced in 1924. It actually passes the House and the Senate by huge margins. And it's sent out to the state, so it appears to be politically popular. Within oh, a period of years, we're talking, you know, six years, only about six states ratify the debate, the political opposition that is generated to, you know, with regard to the child labor amendment is really interesting and kind of disappointing, you know, from my perspective, <laughs> disturbing in, in some ways, because you had a wide range of arguments against the child labor amendment. And it was very simply worded. It, it would give Congress the power to regulate you know, child labor. But um, because they use that language, child labor and not child employment, you had opponents of the, the amendment argue that this would give the federal government broad authority to regulate whether you know Johnny or you know Sally could do chores at home, you know, chores on the farm. Congress would be able to regulate, you know, the intimate details of kids working on family farms and, and doing chores at home. That wasn't the intent of the, the amendment at all, but those were arguments that were used. And then you had some opposition coming from people who said that, well, these are radical socialists in Congress, Marxists. In fact, the there was a claim that the origin of the child labor amendment was from Russia. There was this, you know, big red scare concerning the child labor amendment that it, it, it you know, it was basically designed in Moscow and it was Marxist inspired, and that was used as an argument against it as well. Lots of other arguments, though. The Catholic Church was opposed to the amendment because it believed that it would give Congress power to regulate child labor. How do you go about doing that? Well, you probably would require students, kids to go to school. So if Congress had power to regulate schools, they could regulate parochial schools. If they could regulate parochial schools and they could regulate what's taught in those schools, they helped defeat the amendment in the state of Massachusetts. And in New York, they had to withdraw a vote on the amendment because of opposition from the Catholic Church. It's um it's a it's an amazing story because we also hear so much about how the progressive era is sort of the reform of child labor and that that happened at a state level though it didn't happen at a federal level despite the attempts despite the activism we wait until 1938 until the the the, the Fair Labor Standards Act and that is you know well out of the 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 period of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era so that that was the law that finally stuck. What does it actually prohibit children from doing in the workplace? Well, first of all, I just want to mention that the third attempt at the federal level to regulate child labor was part of Roosevelt's New Deal. The National Industrial Recovery Act, the NIRA, provided for, um, it delegated a lot of power to the president, to the executive branch, to establish committees composed of employers and employee groups, labor groups, uh, to get together and come up with codes for each industry. Like the textile industry 
was the first code established under the NIRA. And those codes included restrictions on child labor. So under the NIRA uh, and Roosevelt's New Deal, the third federal attempt to restrict child labor was in place, but the Supreme Court strikes that down as well in Schechter Poultry, saying that this was too much delegation of lawmaking power to the executive branch. It was delegation running riot. So I just want to point that out, that the third attempt at a federal law regulating child labor was overturned by the Supreme Court. So we get the fourth attempt, which is the Fair Labor Standards Act. The FLSA did was establish a 40-hour um, work week, time and a half for overtime. So if employees were going to work their employees more than 40 hours, they had to pay time and a half. Then there was a federal minimum wage established. It started off at 25 cents an hour. We could talk about what it is now because that's a, it's a sensitive issue. And then child labor restrictions. So there are four major provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. That law gave Congress the power to regulate child labor. It's upheld in 1941 in the case of U.S. v. Darby Lumber, unanimously, eight to nothing, by the Supreme Court. And by that time, you know, the Supreme Court has changed politically. You know, 1937, that's considered to be like the constitutional revolution of 37. You get the switch in time and save nine. At that point, you have major decisions where the Supreme Court upholds federal regulation of the market in NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel. And then in West Coast Hotel v. Parrish, they uphold state minimum wage laws. So 1937 is the, you know, the turning point where the Supreme Court finally says, okay, Congress and the states have the power to pass regulation of labor conditions and minimum wage laws, maximum hours laws. The court does a lot in that case. It overturns the Hammer v. Dagenhart precedent, saying that that was wrongly decided at the time. It was based on uh, a theory of congressional power that was wrong. There's nothing in the Constitution that limits Congress's power to regulate commerce between the states. The Tenth Amendment is not a limitation on congressional authority. What's interesting about the Darby Lumber case is that it didn't involve child labor at all. It involved uh, you know, a lumber company that wasn't paying its employees time and a half for overtime and the federal minimum wage. So it wasn't child labor wasn't even involved in that case, but because they upheld the Fair Labor Standards Act, they uphold child child labor restrictions for the first time at the federal level. So it's a long, you know, that's a long battle. It's not during the progressive period anymore. You know, we're well beyond that. And I point out in my book, and so do other authors, that you know, by the time we get to that point where the Supreme Court finally upholds federal power to regulate child labor exploitation, the issue is, is, is kind of changed significantly, right? The worst forms of child labor exploitation are past. Your book concludes, uh, well, I should say the last two chapters at least uh, conclude with the contemporary deregulation of child labor laws really since the 1980s. Um, 
how do you think this has developed and how is the recent past and as in the late 20th century brought us to where we are today? Yeah, we haven't seen major changes to the Fair Labor Standards Act in terms of weakening you know, the restrictions on child labor. Uh, basically, you cannot, if you're 17 and under, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, as currently you know, applied today, you cannot work in any dangerous occupation around, you know, any hazardous occupation around dangerous machinery. If you're 17 and under, you cannot do that. It's a violation of federal law. If you're 16 and 17 years old, though, you can work. You can work in other jobs. Um, and it kind of depends on, you know, what state law is at that point. Uh, also, the, the Secretary of Labor will make a determination whether certain types of jobs or industries are hazardous and should be off limits to children. So, you know, we've had some some changes throughout the night, you know, the the late 1990s, mid 1990s to the early 2000s. But most of the the we, you know, the changes of the at the at the were at the local level. During the 90s, there was a growing uh, prevalence of of child labor. The Clinton administration decided to crack down. I think in, in my, my my book, I mentioned Food Lion was hit with a, a major fine for employing children in their uh, grocery stores, allowing them to work meat cutters, you know, and, and working excessive hours beyond what federal law permitted. Uh, so there was a crackdown there. It kind of depends on the administration that's in power in the White House, whether we're going to you know, see tougher enforcement of child labor laws or weaker enforcement. During the Reagan administration, there was weaker enforcement or attempt to weaken laws. Clinton administration tried to get a little tougher. In my book, in the last chapter especially, I discuss the 2000s and how, you know, as part of the Tea Party movement of 2010, that midterm election where we saw the rise of kind of the libertarian Tea Party movement in opposition to Obamacare, there were strong libertarian arguments against child labor laws. We saw at the state level some attempts to weaken those laws, and they did in some states. Um, what they did was remove requirements for work permits for 16 and 17 year olds. In fact, just yesterday, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed legislation in Arkansas that repealed the permit requirement for 16 and 17 year olds in that state. And part of that requirement required parental consent for kids to work at age 16 and 17. So repealing the permit requirement takes the parents out of that decision and says the 16 and 17 year olds will decide if they're gonna work you know, outside of school hours. So we're, we're seeing some of that even now, but back around 2010, 2012, there was this libertarian push to weaken child labor laws in Maine uh, and in Missouri and other states. 
Some of it was not successful, but they did at the state level weaken some laws. Um, and, you know, Newt Gingrich, when he was running for the presidency in 2012, for the Republican nomination in, in 2011, I think it was in November, December of 2011, he made a proposal to allow kids to work as janitors in public schools. And uh, he called child labor laws truly stupid. So and I actually take that and make it the title of, of the chapter. And that was kind of the thinking of some people. And that, that's what prompted me to write the darn book. You know, I could not believe that here we are in 2011, 2012, you have people saying that child labor laws were stupid, that we need to weaken them or abolish them, repeal them, because we had an entire history, almost an entire century of this struggle against child labor laws. And I had been teaching that in my constitutional law classes. You know, I was teaching Hammer v. Dagenhart, Bailey v. Drexel Furniture Company, U.S. v. Darby Lumber, I was teaching those major cases for 28 years and thinking that, okay, you know, this is settled law. You know, federal government has the power to regulate child labor. Child labor, oppressive child labor is bad. You know, we shouldn't go there. Um, but now we are seeing arguments that people wanted to weaken child labor laws. That prompted me to, to write the book. And, um, you know, I thought that even... At that point, we'd seen, well, the end of the push to weaken laws. But it came out around the same time that Trump was running for election in 2016. He, when he, when he won, he appointed Betsy DeVos. She had actually supported a number of organizations, foundations that were advocating eliminating or weakening uh, child labor laws. So that became a point of controversy. Uh, so it hasn't ended there. <laughs> you know, here we are almost six or seven year, uh, years later, and we're still seeing attempts to weaken child labor laws. So where do we go from here, John? Do you think there's going to be another movement to adopt an amendment? Or, I mean, if the federal government already has the power to do this, it's really more about the will, the will to sustain child labor laws ensure that they don't get uh, reduced to meaningless. So, I mean, do we have the will? Does America have the will to protect its children? That's an excellent point, Michael. You know, the Fair Labor Standards Act is still the law, you know, and that sets a floor that no state can go below, right? Because federal law is supreme under the Constitution. States, they can tinker with, you know, child labor laws, but they can't, you know, go below and undermine what the Fair Labor Standards Act prohibits. So it's going to come down to, you know, each state and the political culture of each state. You know, do we believe that having kids work excessive hours or even, you know, kind of working long hours outside of school or even dropping out of school and going into the job market, is that good for society? Is that actually good for them personally? I mean, that's something that we have to decide as, as a community. And I think that's going to kind of come down to a state-by-state -state issue because what we're seeing now, it, not just in Arkansas, but in other states, they're considering weakening child labor laws because where are we in the labor market right now? 
unemployment is low. You have employers kind of desperate to hire people. They're not getting enough you know, applications for job positions. So there's a, a strong push to allow kids to work in these jobs. And we have to be careful about that because there are so many dangers, not just to these kids, but to society in general. Just last year, there was a company in Pennsylvania. It was a tree trimming service. They hired 17, they had 17 year olds working. And that clearly violated the Fair Labor Standards Act because that is an inherently hazardous job. They were working around a wood chipper and that is a dangerous object. And unfortunately, one of the 17 year olds was partially sucked in to the wood chipper and he died as a result of his injuries. The company was fined a substantial amount of money. Uh, so yeah, we, as a society, we need to just, you know, we need to make important decisions on whether, you know, it's, a, you know, we want to allow you know, kids to be working rather than going to school and weigh the, the benefits of having more young people in the job market, job market as opposed to having them stay in school and, and getting a degree. Absolutely. That's well, that's well put, John. And I think, uh, I think your book is really important. I know you wish it wasn't as important as it is today in a sense, because I don't, you want to, you almost want to make yourself redundant, but, uh, but your book is not redundant. It's really important for people to return to it. It was published in 2018, uh, but it, it's as if it was published just yesterday in terms of you know, all the state laws that are coming out recently. I can't thank you enough for joining the show. This is one of the biggest issues in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And what your book shows is that it hasn't gone away. It's still at the heart of what we're debating about our country today. Thanks so much for joining me, John. You're welcome. And thank you for inviting me, Marco. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.